Welcome to episode 30 of How We Win. All over the country, people are staying home, staying safe, doing their part, and doing extraordinary things. We're giving you the tools that you need to make a difference right now from your living room. That's right. The best antidote to anxiety is action. We need your help, and we will get through this together. We sure will. Joining us to discuss the news of the day and help us with this week's to-do list is the founder of Daily Coast, Marcos Mulitsas. We'll talk about some stories you may have missed and what you can do about them. Then we'll hear from Nathan Rubin, founder of Millennial Politics. We spoke to him before the coronavirus outbreak and have been looking forward to sharing this great conversation about how younger voters are engaging and the hope that it brings us for November. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Mariah Craven. And And this this is is How How We Win. Win. Marcos, we really appreciate you hanging out with us. We're all in our, you know, usually Mariah and I are hanging out in the studio, but I'm in Newport Beach right now. Mariah's uh, still in L.A. I'm here close to my parents so I can bring them supplies because they're stuck. And, uh, you know, we have a whole new reality, but lots, lots to talk about. So we really appreciate you joining us. Yeah, this is very exciting. Let's just start with talking about the the news of the day, because I'm sure there's a lot that we miss because, you know, the most important thing is how do we navigate coronavirus and, um, you know, making sure that people uh, take it seriously and stay home and social distance and uh, do all the important, important work to flatten the curve. But this has a, a big impact. It's already having a big impact on our elections. What are you seeing? You know, we've had some primaries that have uh, been postponed. Um, We should be talking about vote by mail, you know, every opportunity we get right now. uh, As we speak, the Dems are fighting for funding to help states transition to vote by mail. Marcos, what what are your thoughts on what this is meaning for our elections and what we can do about it? And it's interesting. And one of the things that's kind of fascinating about this entire crisis is is how all the solutions to it are sort of liberal solutions, which is one reason Republicans are struggling so much. If you think back to 9-11, the solutions there, um, and I put solutions in, in quotation marks, but the solutions were very conservative-leaning, right? It was it was uh, responding to terrorism, militarization, increasing the Pentagon budget, um, curtailing civil liberties, right? I mean, th- that was their, that was their, like, glory kind of crisis because it allowed them to push through all these things that they had wanted to push through and they had a rationale for it. And it feels like the COVID crisis is the exact opposite where since there's no clear invader, there's no clear enemy, the solution is for us to come together as a society and for government to prop up the economy, to directly help individuals. Um, The solutions are, are very much providing an opportunity to enact some pretty key progressive priorities. And one of those, obviously, uh, and relevant to this, to the topic of the conversation, is obviously elections and vote by mail. And and this is, this is yeah. shouldn't be a progressive priority. Right. right. It's absurd that, it, that the idea that more people should have access to the franchise is a partisan issue is a real indictment, I think, on the progress, on the conservative movement. And, uh, but it's been clear for a long time that they are facing a demographic challenge. Younger voters are much more likely to vote Democratic. 
people of color are obviously much more likely to vote Democratic. And, and there's a big overlap between youth and people of color, right? I mean, it's mm-hmm. the, the Latino community in the United States, the median age is 18 years old. You know, half of us still, I'm Latino, half of us still cannot vote because we're not 18. Mm-hmm. Uh, also means that when they turn 18, they're the least likely to vote. I mean, this is just a sad fact of electoral reality is, is that young people and uh, communities of color are less likely to vote. Therefore, they are the easiest to suppress. And Republicans mm-hmm. have made an art out of suppressing the the vote. And things like voter ID, right, has been a big sort of push in, in conservative, conservative states is to try to keep people from voting. And that all goes away with vote by mail. It becomes impossible to suppress the vote in urban districts mm-hmm. by having just a few voting machines in high population areas compared right. to the suburbs, right? In almost any suburb in the country, you can go on election day and you're in and out in 15 minutes at right. most. People are waiting in line eight hours in Cincinnati and, or Cleveland, right? In, in places like that. And we saw that just, just recently in Texas too with the primary there. Yeah, we exactly. We just saw it. And it, was, it was in black precincts too. It was, it was, right. um, and that's by design. This is not some kind of weird accident that just happened. This is by design. And so vote by mail has been sort of this solution to that problem. It gets very, very hard to suppress the vote when everybody gets a ballot in the mail. And I, I got to me, I, I'm, you know, you guys are in California too. I'm in California. I love vote by mail, not because it's easier to vote and that's a big part of it. But I love to sit in front of the ballot on my computer, yes. Googling candidates and judges and ballot initiatives, and just taking my time and making sure that I'm making that reasoned uh, decision without having that pressure of being in a ballot box and trying to get in and out as quickly as possible. So there's a lot of reasons to to, to recommend vote by mail and, and conservatives have zero, have had historically zero interest in it, obviously, because it removes a big tool in their toolkit to try to suppress the the liberal vote and and yet now we're in a situation where ohio which is one of those states that has very effectively suppressed the democratic vote they're Mm. now both the republican secretary of state and the republican governor are now pushing legislation to create universal vote by mail because they have no choice I mean, we're in a world now where this is the only way people can um, exercise a constitutionally guaranteed right to vote. And once you open that door, I mean, it's not like Ohio can come back and say, all right, (laughs) no more. We're not going to do that anymore. I mean, they can try. Who knows? But it becomes very, very very difficult. And, and if you look at the map, I was, I was just looking at this and I was going to write about this in the next couple of days. If you look at the map of states that have vote by mail, it's all the democratic states. Like we're not going to have any problem voting in November. It is Republican states that are going to have a problem voting and they're going to have to figure this out and come up with solutions. And, and they don't have a choice, right? I mean, they have to, they have to do this. And, and so this has become, um, a an opportunity uh the circumstances are obviously horrifying and mm-hmm. i wish it would be over today you know and or that it had never happened but if there's a silver lining to it it's going to be this idea that we need to make it easier for people to vote 
yeah. everywhere and vote by mail and expanding that vote by mail uh, system into as many places, if not everywhere. I know Nancy Pelosi has it in her list of demands for the next uh, right. stimulus package. I don't know. Obviously, they're they're negotiating they're, this right now. Who knows if it'll survive or not? But I really hope but, you're right. Yeah, I mean it. It's uh, it seems strategically for Republicans um, really important that they pass vote by mail. As you said, the Republican states are the ones that don't do it, but you know their demographic is the demographic that is really uh, on lockdown right now. Like older voters who you know, would tend to vote Republican aren't able to leave. So, right. Um, but that's the wild thing is that, uh, early, vo- early voting programs, like funding for that have been included in some of the stimulus proposals and Republicans are pushing back on it. Kevin Brady, a congress member from Texas asked, you know, what early voting has to do with coronavirus? <laughs> well, <laughs> everything. And if you can't see that, then, you know, I hope your constituents are taking note come November. Well, Kevin Brady is going to have a bunch of constituents that aren't going to be able to vote. Well, I guess I guess that's his plan. <laughs> you bring up Texas, and, and I've actually been right. I've been trying to talk Republicans into taking the pandemic seriously just by saying it's in your freaking interest. <laughs> it's in your right. self-interest, right? So I, I literally have this piece that, I've, that I'm working in right now in Texas. I, I actually have the Texas exit polls open right now. I just had a sure uh, um, coincidence. And... 65 and older in Texas in 2016, there were 15% of the vote. They voted 64-35 for Trump. That's a 29-point spread between Democrats and Republicans in Texas. And those are the people that cannot vote. Right. And in Texas, it's a purpling state. It's not going to quite, right. you know, I don't, I don't think we're quite at purple status right now. It took a, a Ted Cruz type of Republican who everybody hated to make it a two point, <laughs> two point state. Right. But, but, um, well, you're right. There. I really I do mean, hate Ted Cruz. Just throw it in there. <laughs> <laughs> like Republican Maybe Rand Paul, they hate more now because Rand Paul decided to infect them all. But Rand um, Paul, Dr. Rand Paul. For anyone that could possibly have missed that, he uh, took a uh, he was suspected of having coronavirus, took a test and continued to go to the Senate gym, which I don't even know why the Senate gym was still open when every other gym in the country was closed. But um, yeah, Dr. Rand Paul setting a good example. Um, Florida, Arizona, Georgia, North uh, North Carolina has a Republican uh, legislature that would need to um, to approve it. But those other states had both Republican governors and legislatures. And it is clearly in their interest to make it as easy for everybody to vote because that senior vote is, if it's suppressed in the least bit, Democrats are going to win fairly easily in what should be really tough competitive states. Yeah. The other thing that has me really concerned today is Trump is clearly laying the groundwork to end social distancing and, and lockdowns, for lack of a better word, early in order to protect the economy, which is so absurd because we know what happens when things work, see South Korea. We know what happens when we don't do enough, see Italy. And he's seeding this idea that and this and this phrase that I've been seeing, you know, Republicans using for the last couple of days, which is let's not make the cure worse than the quote unquote problem which is just terrifying. And then you have, speaking of Texas, 
the lieutenant governor, Dan Patrick, an absolute clown, who yeah. is suggesting that, you know, grandparents would be okay dying in order to preserve our economy for their grandchildren. This is all absolutely bananas. <laughs> it sounds so <laughs> absurd, but he literally said that. And, and he's, of course, he's wrong because, like, the rest of us aren't demons. No, we don't. We don't want somebody to die a horrible, isolated death in order to preserve uh, the economy, which is obviously super important. But you know, is it more important than someone's life? Well, Trump's clearly taken a, a big hit personally, all with all of his properties um, closed down. Everything that he's done has been to benefit himself and to benefit his family. And uh, now he's taking a huge hit. You know, what's he going to do? It shouldn't be a surprise, but it, it's constantly a surprise. How else yeah, I, it's, it's not even Italy versus South Korea. I mean, I think Trump and the Republicans are dead set on creating like a whole third new level of, of you know, a whole new course. Italy at least has locked stuff down and is taking its hard medicine and to try to stem mm -hmm. the, the spread of the coronavirus. Trump and Republicans are talking about just completely opening everything back up, acting like everything's right. normal and, and, and clearly um, on, a, on a disastrous path. And again, this is a, I, I don't understand why they're not appealing to their own self-interest, aside from Trump's hotels. Just their base is right. both impacted by this. Right. And if you look at a map of states that have shut down, it is the bluest states, right? It's California and Washington and Oregon and New York and New Jersey mm -hmm. and Illinois with a smattering of, of red states like Ohio and West Virginia. But so many states, Texas, Florida, still refuse to take any hard measures. They, they, they still act like this is a binary choice. You know, it's either the economy or it's old people and we're going to pick the economy, which is ghoulish. Yeah. From the crowd that, you know, remember, these were the people who were screaming about death panels just a couple of years ago. And now they're literally saying we're going to condemn people because the Dow Jones has taken a hit. <laughs> and in states like Florida and Georgia and Texas, if you kill off 10% of their old population, which is the path they want to apparently are headed towards, it's going to crush them politically. I mean, just that self-interest. And I feel crazy as a liberal mm. screaming at them <laughs> to get their <laughs> crap together so that their voters don't die. Um, Anybody dying before their time is up, right? Right. Exactly. Exactly. You're trying to be helpful to them. I am <laughs> They're not trying listening. To I am trying to electorally help my mortal enemies. Well, just being helpful to humanity in general uh, happens to align with that. So, you know, it's like it's not a stretch. Like we want to save lives. Heck, Trump yeah. is killing his people off by by talking about supposed cures to the to the disease that aren't really cures. And people oh, are yeah. taking these chemicals and dying. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so let's talk about people who will listen to you. Uh, so, so this is um, this was wild to me when I was prepping for this that Daily Coast has been around since 2002, which is I, time flies. And uh, 
it's really one of the, like, I'm going to call it one of the founding fathers of online political activism. Uh, a lot of campaigns and organizations are trying to play catch up with that right now. They've been relying on on person-to-person, face-to-face contact. Do you have any advice for them as they're uh, making the shift right now? Yeah. So <laughs> the, the, the short answer is probably not. Um, but the, the, the long answer is because everybody's, and, and the reason is not to be, not, I'm trying not to be glib or anything, but it's, it's the biggest mistake people do when they come to us asking for help in building their, their email list or bringing attention to their campaigns is that they want to use their own words, their own messaging. And every community online has its own language, mm-hmm. has its own norms and traditions. And so the Daily Coast community, we we have you know almost twenty years, which we're 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 really granddaddies of this whole thing at this point. <laughs> yeah. um, we know how to get people motivated to take action. Mm-hmm. I can't go to your list and say I know how to make your list take action, like because every list, every community has an ethos and a culture, right. and having to speak to that culture. Um, is almost like an organic learning experience. And just like I wouldn't like I I wouldn't know how to get your swing left, you know, list to perform at its highest potential and and you can get mine. You would do a pretty words. good job though. You would <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I would be surprised if there are anyone, you know, listening to our show right now or swing lefters who aren't avid daily coast readers. It's yeah. it's um Hopefully. But, but, but what <laughs> Hopefully. you're saying, but I but I am getting advice out of what you're saying, which is it's around community and you know, dipping into somebody else's community without being aware of it or being a part of it or knowing the language that that is used there is not effective, but that could also mean that people have their own communities, their own uh, language and and methods of of relating to each other that could be applied online yeah, my, if you don't have an opportunity to do it in person. Right. My advice is to trust people who run those communities, mm-hmm. whether it's it's individuals, whether it's organizations, whether it's influencers, whatever whoever you're talking to, is you you have to trust their their voice and their methods, and as long as it's you know, you're not like a Joe Rogan type of a hole. Um, <laughs> it's it's to to people have built these communities for a reason. Like they've had that success for a reason, and you have to trust that. And it requires letting go a little bit of your own need to control your message and your mm. your 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 way of doing things. Um, and and I say this because I, I see it all the time. The, the organizations were that are most successful that we work with are the ones that just sort of say. All right, you here's what we want to communicate. You guys use your your words, uh, you know, that whatever's most effective. So here's a world where yeah, yeah, you're not knocking on doors anymore. You're not talking to people outside the farmers market. What are you doing to reach people? How are you going to maximize your resources? As you're talking, I'm thinking about the Mike Bloomberg campaign and how much money they spent engaging influencers and giving them the language that they were supposed to use <laughs> and how that really seemed so obvious and and to backfire on them so we we have i yeah, think that fell like, flat 
I think Twitter started banning some of those accounts as spam accounts because they were all using the same boilerplate uh, message. So they look like bots. Yeah. It did work in American Samoa, though. So there's that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, One thing that you guys have done really well for a long time that's interesting is the online petitions and pledges and and that kind of stuff. Could you talk about some of those that have been particularly successful campaigns to engage people through online petitions? Well, I mean, probably one of our biggest ones was the net neutrality fight mm-hmm. where we um, use petitions to not only pressure commissioners on the on the uh, Federal Communications Commission, but also once you identify individuals that are interested on an issue like net neutrality, then you're able to message them directly. And we got over a million uh, letters came from Daily Coast were delivered to the FCC during the comment period. So, wow. uh, but people people think in, lo- in large part that petitions are one. You know, a lot of people think they're just gimmicky, or they think that it's just about delivering a stack of signatures to a congresswoman's office or something. Mm-hmm. That's that's part of it, and that's that's not particularly uh, the gimmicky part. Sometimes it can be. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna completely lie. But <laughs> the, the real value. I mean, there's, and there's real value here. The real value is for us to go. Oh, this person is really interested in net neutrality. This person's really interested in healthcare. And then when there's an opportunity to rally people to you know around a healthcare issue, then we know exactly who those uh, individuals are and. Our ability to get them to write letters, to send comments to uh, federal agencies, to to go to a rally is hugely, hugely increased. And and we don't operate in a vacuum at Daily Coast. We we like to think of ourselves as sort of a connecting hub of the progressive movement. So if MoveOn is having a rally in defense of the Affordable Care Act, we know exactly who to talk to on our list that can then go out to these MoveOn rallies in the outside world. So we're, it's, it's about identifying people's interests and um, sort of activating them. So whenever you see a petition, you think, oh, those things are stupid. There's a point to them. (laughs) No, I don't think they're stupid. In in fact, um, as you talk about building your community and getting people engaged, driving people into action, for me, when I first started doing this, there's so many people who are just shy about using their voice just haven't taken that first step even on social media or with their friends and family to um, be vocal about what's important to them. And for me, one of the first ways that I did that was through petitions. Like the first thing is you sign a petition. Then you take that next step of sharing that you signed that petition on your Facebook post or whatever and, and making your uh, political views public. And um, and we all need to be doing that now. And I think we, uh, to a large extent, are much more engaged than we were Certainly, when you started Daily Coast 2002, you know, but I was signing petitions around healthcare and uh, got invited to a rally. So I went to that rally and uh, that was my first rally. And, you know, um, and just kind of it was dipping your toe into activism, sort of a, a good first step that those petitions had provided. I'm sure that's the case for a lot of people. That's I mean, that's incredible. And, and I'm I'm glad you shared that because it's easy for me to forget <laughs> what it's like to be somebody who's just getting into politics. Mm-hmm. That is so far removed from my experience. And we're talking <laughs> decades ago in a world that looked a lot different than it looks now. Mm. Yeah. Uh, just even technology and stuff. So it, it's, it's, 
I don't, some, you know, it's hard for me to see what it's like for somebody just trying to step into a political world and trying to make sense of it. And how do you get involved? And uh, I'm sure it's overwhelming. So that is, that actually, that was, that was, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. So wild time to get involved in all of this stuff. Um, uh, so your most recent book is 2017's The Resistance Handbook, 45 Ways to Fight Trump. First question is, um, how many more ways have you come up with since <laughs> since that was published? It's given us a lot of reasons. Um, and then second question is, the book is about improvements. It, it's more about improvements that we can make to ourselves as a country and protecting vulnerable populations. But why is that so important in a book about fighting Trump? Everything that we predicted was going to happen with Trump we've seen in action. And in fact, it's, it might be even worse. And the only thing that has sort of been a saving grace is that Trump is just so God awfully incompetent that he hasn't been effective in enacting a fraction of what he would if he, if given Mm -hmm. a chance. And, but, um, if there's ever been any doubt about what Republicans are about, it's not about Trump anymore. This is about the Republican party. They're a hundred percent aboard, whatever it is that, Trumpian ideology is it's selfishness, looking up for yourself and demonizing, blaming others for your problems. And we're even seeing it with, with this pandemic where he, now he's insisting on calling it the Chinese virus mm-hmm. um, right. to the point where his speechwriter, I don't know if you saw his speechwriter had actually written coronavirus and he crossed it out and put Chinese Um, so it's him, it's coming from him. And, um, we have to understand that this is not just, it's not Trump. Trump doesn't fix things. And, and one of the problems I've had with the progressive movement in a long time is this hyper-focus on the presidency as the, as the be all end all. Mm -hmm. And the presidency is just a part of that solution. And, the broader solution, which is why I love you guys, the broader solution has always been down ballot is, mm-hmm. is, is winning legislative seats um, at all levels. You mean you love me is, and Mariah the most, right? That's what you're- yes. <laughs> yes, clearly. <laughs> I thought I'd make that clear, but let's make it clear. <laughs> and uh, it's been one of my big criticisms with a lot of the, the Bernie supporting crowd is that, that hyper-focus on, on Bernie Sanders as, as the answer when Bernie never even opposed, you know, he's, he still supports the filibuster. So it literally none of this agenda would ever happen mm-hmm. because we wouldn't have the legislative support and we don't see that kind of energy at the, at that state legislative, um, at the legislative level. And, and right. that's changed. I mean, that's clearly changed since, and we saw that in 2018, we saw as, as a broader movement, we are a lot more focused on, Congress, we're a lot more focused on state houses, uh, state legislatures, and even local offices. And, and that's how you take over the country and you make it a better place. That's how Republicans did it. This isn't, this isn't uh, some novel new theory that we need to test out. I mean, it's right. literally the only way you can en- enact this kind of change. And it has to be from top to bottom. And yeah, a lot of us are, are focused on the presidency for obvious reasons, but it may be more important for us to take the Senate than it is for us to take 
uh, maybe that's a little pushing it, given Trump's Well, no, I, I think there's a good case to but, be made for that, especially when you look at this, uh, what's going on right now in the Senate with um, actually some bipartisan cooperation, you know, working on this, this legislation for working people and for families. And then Mitch McConnell comes in and just blows it all up and sends it to a couple of bullshit votes that he knows aren't going to get passed just to make a political statement. You know, yeah. it's... Yeah, no matter no matter who's no no matter who's president, if Mitch McConnell is still the Senate Majority Leader, then we're still getting very little done. Yeah, and so I'm I'm happy to see that 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 sort of shift uh, in our in our outlook as a broader movement towards realizing that the presidency is, isn't the end all be all. And in some ways, I'm I'm I wasn't I'm not a Biden person. You know, I was a Warren person and. And I'm, I'm still doing my own mourning, uh, you know, over <laughs> over the primary. Um, but it just means, you know what, if you're not excited about Biden, and I know a lot of people listening probably aren't, great. There's a lot of races down ballot that we can get excited about. So there's something on the ballot this November that that is going to be important and exciting and fun. And if it's not Biden, that's okay. There's others. It's not all or nothing. You know, you can yeah. vote for Biden and work your, you know, butt off for uh, Mark Kelly in Arizona or Cunningham in North Carolina or any of our Democrats in Georgia. I mean, we have so many opportunities and we need to work. Or Susan Collins, like, let's really get rid of her, right? There's (laughs) so many great opportunities. So it doesn't, don't be all worried. I'm not really excited about Biden. Who cares? You know, this is not American Idol. You don't need to be excited about him. There's there's a lot of stuff happening. Find something. I wish it was about. American Idol because a lot more people would participate if it was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, young voters may actually turn out then, huh? <laughs> right. Well, that's awesome. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, so thanks for, for laying that out there. Before we go, we want to talk about, we always have a couple of calls to action for people, but we want to include you on this because um, you have a great uh, motto, log line on your site. It's, uh, it's news that you can do something about, right? Um, yes. This week's to-do list for our listeners, um, one thing that everyone should be doing if they haven't done it yet is fill out your census form. That's something that you can do at home online. Everyone takes should five ha- minutes. So easy. Yeah. Um, you should have received have you talked it. about how important the census is, how it's, it's almost everything. It, it's Please. political representation. It's where money goes. It's, it's protecting vulnerable communities. Everything. The census is, is so critically important. It is. It is critically important. And obviously, um, the new reality we're living in right now creates uh, a unique challenge because we have a lot of uh, field work that goes around the census and, and knocking on doors and making sure that those uh, forms have been filled out that we're not able to do. So fill out your form, make sure that you account for everyone in your household, share this message with your friends and neighbors. This is really important. It's something that you can do from the comfort of your living room in between episodes of whatever you're binging. Yeah. And also as a Latino, the Trump administration has been working to suppress Latino participation in the census because obviously power money um, Mm -hmm. are allocated by census questions. And so it's just sort of fear mongering that people are afraid that that immigration authorities can target you if you fill out the census. Uh, They cannot by law, they are not allowed to do so. And so if you're Latino, Talk to your social circle, family, friends. Make sure they let people know that that 
it is critically important that they participate in the census um, because Trump and the Republicans are trying to disenfranchise our entire community and they're doing so via the census and they're not allowed to legally to do so. So it is safe to participate in the census. Right. Important reminder. Thank you so much for that. What about you, Mariah? What What do you want to uh, holler at people to do? Oh, um, to-do list, social distance, no matter what comes out of the White House. And in the meantime, um, some things that you can do that are elections related is call your governor, call your congress member, your senator. Uh, if you live in a state that does not have no excuse vote by mail and tell them that you want no excuse vote by mail. Yes. Call them often, early and often. What about you, Marcos? Do you have anything that you think people should be especially attuned to this week? Man, you guys had some good ones. Um, <laughs> so definitely a big exclamation point on, on both of your suggestions. Uh, mine is, is uh, I keep hearing this from people that, that they're, they're struggling to get their parents to take the pandemic seriously. Mm. And there's a big odds are that their parents are listening to Fox News or conservative radio. And so they don't understand just how dangerous this is. And I just keep hammering them. I mean, just keep at it. I mean, even my, my mother who lives in El Salvador, I had to, I had to spend a couple of weeks just sending her videos from Italy. <laughs> Look what's mm-hmm. happening in Italy. Right. This stuff is happening. Look how many people are dying. But again, for the sake of humanity, we need to, we need to nip this thing as quickly in the bud. And clearly Trump isn't helping and the Republicans aren't helping. And most Republican governors outside of a few rare instances aren't helping. So it is, uh, it is important that those of us who understand the importance of the pandemic and just the dangers it represents, mm-hmm. that we're the ones that are advocating to our, to our social circle that urgency because it's not coming from the top. Well said. Well, thanks so much. For, this is really fun. You know, uh, maybe someday, somewhere, we'll be able to all get together in person and do this. But um, in the meantime, thank you, Marcos, for, for joining us. And thanks for all of you've been doing for, for all of these years. Not Absolutely. to mention your, your service to this country. Um, we really, really appreciate it. Such a pleasure. Thanks. And anytime, um, let me know. I'd be happy to, to visit with you guys. This is fun. Well, now that we know that you're stuck there and not just by the virus, (laughs) I may just be hitting you up. (laughs) Captive audience. All right. Right. Thank you. Be well. Thanks. All right. Thanks so much. Have a great uh, day. Stay safe. Nathan Rubin is a Democratic activist, the award-winning author of Boomers to Millennials, founder of Millennial Politics, and host of the Millennial Politics podcast. He's been featured on CNN, MSNBC, and yes, even Fox News. Nathan, thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Of course. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. First of all, what is Millennial Politics? Sure. So Millennial Politics is an independent and progressive digital media company. Our mission is to shine a spotlight on progressive candidates, causes, organizations, and provide some progressive commentary from a millennial perspective. So uh, we have a website, social media, 
Uh, we do some live streams. We have a podcast. And we recently actually just launched a new YouTube channel. And in the run-up to 2020, we're, we're very much focused on activating and educating. Mm. So uh, really, like I said, trying just to get more young people involved, understand the stakes of this election and every election, um, and really trying to inform uh, everyone that if we all just participated, we could radically transform our government. Mm -hmm. When you say activating, what specific actions are you asking your audience to take? Yeah, so we really have four key things that, that we're focused on. And number one, um, it's getting involved locally. Uh, so this could be, you know, joining a campaign that you're passionate about at any level, whether it's local, state or federal, mm -hmm. um, joining a local political club or organization, um, giving their time or talent. Um, and if they're able to giving their money, mm. um, you know, the, the current system as it's structured, unfortunately, uh, really prioritizes donations. But we've seen over the last couple of election cycles, the power of small dollar donations and how that has really empowered a lot of uh, candidates who otherwise may not have been as successful building grassroots movements. So again, those those quick four would be organizing um, locally with a local political club, uh, volunteering, so joining a local candidate's campaign, um, donating, and then you know giving your talents. If you have a special skill, uh, whether it's digital or, you know, phone banking or whatever that might be, you know, get involved and find a way you can help. Before launching Millennial Politics, what was your experience in organizing and leadership? Oh, gosh, um, it was limited. I'll say that. So my my background is not one of a formal political background. I studied psychology in undergrad. I got my master's in organizational behavior, and I had always, you know, followed politics. Uh, start. I would talk politics, and I, you know, I phone banked for Hillary, and I knocked doors for Hillary, but not in any real system systemic way where I really institutionalized it or routinized mm -hmm. it. And after the 2016 election, I looked back and said, dang, I really should have done more. What can I do um, to really make sure that nothing like that ever happens again? And I was looking around at my network and, you know, I realized that my friends, we, we were enthusiastic about politics, but we didn't know how to get involved. So there wasn't an enthusiasm gap. There was an awareness gap. And mm -hmm. that's what led say, we just need to start informing more people about how they can get involved. And that's what led to millennial politics. That's awesome. That's also my story. I'm, I'm class of November 2016, too, but I'm a bit older than you. I'm not a millennial. So uh, <laughs> I, I have less, um, I have more shame, I guess. I should. More shame. <laughs> more shame. <laughs> I'm not quite a boomer, though. Uh, you know, let's talk about OK Boomer. Do you think there's an actual beef right now between millennials and boomers? I mean, what, what do you think the impact of that will be? Sure. So I kind of write about this in my book, Boomers to Millennials, Moving America Forward. I actually co-authored it with my dad, who is a boomer. Oh. Um, and we really try to explore not only the differences, but similarities. And if you look back over the course of American history, it's always been these small 
passionate groups of activists that have moved America forward, whether it's, you know, if you think back to my parents' generation, the Vietnam War protests followed up uh, by the gay liberation movement and then merging more into my generation of Occupy Wall Street, Black Lives Matter, the Women's March. Really, you know, we have taken to the streets before. We have vocalized our concerns. We have gotten active in electoral politics. So our generation's tactically aren't too dissimilar, Hmm. but there is a generational divide when it comes to specific policies. So, you know, is there truth to the OK Boomer? Maybe. I think so. (laughs) If you look at the data, you know, baby boomers tended to vote more conservative. And if you look at the younger voters, they tend to vote more liberal. Um, But I think there is this real argument from young people that, hey, we're coming of age. We're not these teenagers that you have in mind anymore. A lot of us, especially millennials, the oldest millennial is approaching 40. We're subject matter experts. We're doctors. We're lawyers. So, yeah. you know, at some point we are going to take the reins of power. And uh, if you look at the, the state of affairs, I think sooner is better than later. Great. Um, and why is it important for both of these groups to work together? I mean, it seems like a kind of obvious question, but, you know, how, how can we best support and engage with each other so that we uh, bring our power together? That's a that's a phenomenal question. And, um, you know, I don't want to speak for everybody on this because even I fall into the trap of dismissing, you know, some some of the older folks. But for the most part, the baby boomers really did a fantastic job of ushering in, uh, you know, the civil rights era, the Vietnam War protests, um, bringing in these progressive changes that at the time were pretty radical. So we need to look to them and say, you know, almost teach us your ways in a bit, but also get out of the way kind of thing. So I think it's, you know, we need to build a coalition where we have these shared goals in mind with the understanding that, you know, just due to physics, the nature of time, millennials are going to be rising to power and we might as well be prepared for that to happen. So let's work together to prepare the next generation so that when we get in, we can actually do good things. I think that's really important. And I'm thinking about um, a couple of summers ago, I worked with Congress member Karen Bass to do a millennial and Gen Z grassroots organizing uh, summer youth program. And, uh, you know, all these young people came in with all of these ideas about how to get more people registered to vote, how to turn out um, millennial voters. Uh, but they didn't know quite how to execute. So we ended up spending a lot of time talking about what the groups who came before them did and how they could apply that to these new ideas that they had. So that sort of experience and and new ideas is just really critically important in getting stuff done. I'm a big believer that everyone can learn something from everyone else. Um, And especially you can't write off entire generations. There are people who have been fighting the good fight for 30, 40, 50 years, and we need to all come together if we are going to achieve those goals. Yeah. And you know who's getting left behind in this entire conversation are the Gen Xers. The Gen X, yeah. The, the, come yeah. on. What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> we, do, we do stuff. We're not just like, you know, still hanging out in Seattle with our, you know, hoodies and caps listening to grunge music. We're, we're, we're not just obsessed with Winona Ryder and Ethan Hawke. We still do other stuff. You still can be the coolest generation. <laughs> so, Nathan, what are— I mean, what to are, be fair to Gen X, I, I'm pretty sure Barack Obama classifies himself as part of that. So, you know, he, he was That's a pretty cool right. president. Yes. Big check there. 
there. <laughs> um, so, Nathan, um, when people listen to your podcast, what, what do they hear? So generally, we interview candidates, we interview activists, founders of organizations. Um, uh, we've also had more higher profile guests. Mayor Pete Buttigieg came on the podcast and Andrew Yang earlier in 2019. Mm-hmm. Uh, when they were a little less known, uh, we, we, we don't draw the, the highest profile names, but we happen to land those two guests. Sweet. Um, and we have uh, 150 other episodes uh, on iTunes. So just look up Millennial Politics Podcast and you can find all these different interviews with a wide range. Of, of candidates. We had, you know, everyone from Rashida Tlaib, Ayanna Presley, Colin Allred, Joe Neguse, um, Abby Finkenauer. So, so we covered a wide range of congressional candidates mm-hmm. uh, in the run-up to 2018, and uh, a significant number of them ended up winning their races. Wow. Thanks to you. Thank you. <laughs> well, I wouldn't go that far. Thanks to <laughs> folks like you and Swing Left and all of the organizations of that did the work. Thanks to all of us who stepped up and uh, and who will continue to step up in what is now the most important election of our lifetime. Just going to throw that in there. <laughs> um, speaking of that, what messages are really resonating with your millennial audience? What's pulling them into action most? So right now, I think the top issues that I've noticed that are really activating millennials um, really revolve around climate change, around health care, around anti-corruption, mm. small d democratic reform, um, really kind of understanding that in order for us to get things passed through our uh, governmental system, we really need to overturn Citizens United. We mm. need to you know, elect more citizen politicians, people that aren't beholden to special interests so that they can actually represent their constituents. And then we can tackle the big issues like the imminent climate change that's that's going to be targeting our coastal cities. I mean, these are big things that unfortunately, and I don't want to point any fingers, but previous generations have not had uh, the ability to solve. Well, it's definitely not Gen X's fault. It's the boomers, I think, for sure. <laughs> no. So as, as we um, wrap up, I'm really excited to hear your answer because I think you're going to have a unique take on this. What gives you the most hope about 2020? Great question. I am very cautiously optimistic, and I'll tell you why. One key data point from the 2018 elections that I just found super encouraging is that for the first time in American history, Gen X, Millennial, and Gen Z voters outnumbered the silent generation in baby boomers in terms of total votes in the electorate. And that was in an off-year midterm election. As we get closer to 2020, more Gen Z Uh, voters become eligible every single day. Mm -hmm. More people are registering every single day. Donald Trump, for better or for worse, has activated millions of people across this country. And what this election is going to come out to is turnout. And I really think that young people will be the difference makers in this election. That sounds good to me. I hope so. My daughter gets to vote for the first time this election too. So, um, there you go. That's a prime example. (laughs) I sure she. I sure hope she votes (laughs) for a Democrat. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much. This was awesome, and um, with a hundred and fifty plus interviews, people have a lot to dive into with your podcast. That's awesome. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, we're grateful for all of it. Come find us. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is how we win. We win when we all get involved. That's right. And we want to hear what you're doing to stay involved while staying at home. Send us a note on Twitter 
You can message Steve at Blues Boy Steve, or you can message me. I'm at Mariah underscore Craven. Or you could email both of us at podcast at swingleft.org. Thanks to everyone who has subscribed, rated, and reviewed. Thanks to our friends at Demcast. If you haven't yet, please do subscribe and share this with your friends. Share it on social media. Use the hashtag HowWeWin2020. Check out our page at swingleft.org slash podcast. And of course, sign up to volunteer. We really appreciate you spending some time with us and are excited to bring you more from home next Wednesday. Stay safe and be careful, everybody. Everybody.